automatically adjust microphone settings and make sure that that is off. <laughs> oh, that's off. Okay. Tom doesn't trust others. This is why we have a Tom. We don't need no <laughs> autopilot. We got a Tom. Tom control engaged. This is Tom control to all. So Tom. <laughs> There's so much singing. That I was love beautiful. It. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Chris. And I'm Steph. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. Hey Steph, how's it going? Hey, it's going wonderful. Uh, So I'm out in Park City and I'm snowboarding my heart out. So life is pretty excellent right now. That is fantastic. You're actually taking a brief pause from your snowboarding and vacation just to uh, chat with us. So thanks. That's cool. Or not cold. It's actually you're warm and indoors now. Wait, say that again. It's what? It's not cool. You're warm and indoors. I made a bad joke. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's a nice little break because uh, I haven't been snowboarding all season, so my quads could certainly use a break from all the work. So this is kind of a nice reprieve from that. But it's so fun being out here because I've realized as much as like the Boston cold sort of like eats at my soul each winter. I really love the snow. That part I love because there's something I can do with it. But when it's just cold in Boston, that's just kind of tough to live through. Eats at my soul was pretty dark, wasn't it? I was going to say, this is a really honest take right now. And I'm like, yeah, that that resonates. And also, dang, but um, (laughs) cool. I stand by it. Yeah, it makes sense. And I'm glad that you were having a more reasonable interaction with snow right now. More positive interaction with snow. But on a more technical note, I have an update for Mirage uh, JS Factories because in a recent episode, I was experimenting and using Mirage and Ember Test and talking through some of the questions that I had around how to use Factory specifically because I sort of provide a little bit of context for that episode in case folks haven't heard it. I was really missing having some of that factory tooling in my Ember Test where I'm used to using like Factory Bot or when I'm testing in Rails. So I discovered that the current project that I'm working on is using Mirage JS. So I reached for factories, but I had some confusion and uncertainties around how exactly to incorporate factories, especially in sync and using it alongside Ember data. So we talked about that, which was very helpful. And then Sam Selikoff, who is the creator of Mirage JS and also the co-founder of Ember Map, uh, reached out to me on Twitter, which was fabulous. Uh, so he pointed me in the direction of some documentation that really helped out. So when I first was using factories, I was thinking of using factories more as they're modeling the client side of the data object, and they're really meant to model the server side of the data. And then when making a request to Mirage or making an HTTP request, Mirage will intercept. And then when using Ember data, that will get serialized and placed into an Ember data model. So instead of passing that Mirage model directly to my component in my test, which is what I was doing, I still want to mimic the server side data, but then I want that object, that Mirage object to eventually become an Ember data model instead. So that was super helpful. That's awesome that uh, Sam reached out and it's this is sort of the dream of the internet coming true where like the maintainer of a project heard a thing that you were saying or saw something you wrote on the internet and was just like, oh, here, let me point you in this other direction. And it's nice when the internet does that thing and it's positive and everybody's better off for it. So yeah, glad that that worked out and glad that you have a little more clarity now. 
Yeah, I'm very excited to go back. So I haven't had a chance to go back and uh, rework some of the factories that I've implemented, but I'm very excited to use the new like design approach that was intended. And it was great. As you mentioned, this is like the dream and so awesome about having this podcast and that folks reach out and sort of share their experiences with us. Because Sam wasn't the only person. There was someone else that also reached out on Twitter to me to sort of like nudge me in the direction and follow up on like, well, it's supposed to be more of like a server representation versus the client representation of the data. So that's um, kind of an update on my Ember adventures. How about you? What's going on in Chris World? Uh, what's going on in Chris World? I had a weird week. Uh, we lost some time this week to, I still don't actually know what happened, but everything started to break and it broke in ways that were surprising and sad. And then it was one of those situations where you chase down the bug and when you get there, the bug just vanishes. Like you just keep like chasing it around a corner and around a corner and around a corner. And then you turn one last corner and there's just like mist floating away and it was never there. So to provide slightly more technical details on what happened, we were in the process of doing a pretty major upgrade on a branch and the build started failing in that. So we were like, oh no, we must have done something wrong. We must have a dependency that's out of date. The particular failure that we were seeing is the project was failing to build and it was this deeply nested dependency within Babel, which my understanding is Babel is used to do all of the transpiling and source to source stuff. So if you need generators, it will turn that into the ES5 equivalent of generator functions. Or if you're using decorators, it'll you know back transpile that or all of the different variants of syntax in JavaScript, as well as some TypeScript things and just a lot of tooling for the source files. And then I think it also does the concatenation and minification and not actually sure, but there's a feature or a portion of that called Babel preset env. It contains some of the logic around which transforms to apply to your code. So it knows about the browsers that you're targeting, knows about the source code that you've written, the existing like future compatible uh, JavaScript or TypeScript, and it will transform based on what it understands about those two. And it was particularly complaining about the lack of a dependency called GenSync, which was, when I looked it up, was used for transforming generators, but it was only failing on CI. And that was very weird. So we chased it around for a little bit longer. We couldn't get it to fail locally. We tried every version of busting every cache we had ever heard of in the history of the world. Couldn't get it to work. And then when we fixed that one, another one would show up. And then I ended up pairing with Matt Sumner, a ThoughtBot developer here who's been on the show a few times. And it was this day of sort of devolving into just trying anything we could come up with to try and even recreate the error. And then at one point, I don't know why Matt said it, but he just said, what if this just went away at some point? That would be the worst possible thing. And then suddenly the build just started passing. Like it just fixed itself. My loose guess or my working theory is that someone may have pushed a package with a incorrect dependency list, like force pushed over an existing one, but then force pushed again to fix it. And so silently this whole thing just resolved itself. But it was it was bad. It was bad series of, <laughs> it was bad. That's awful. Because I mean, on one hand, yay, it's fixed. But then you have no idea as to how long were you investigating? Was it a full day, half day? Across two different days, I paired for multiple hours with two different people. So in terms of like how many individual person hours, which isn't really a metric that I believe in, but sometimes it matters, like two person days, uh, probably no more like three person days probably went into this total which is a lot of time. And we still don't actually know. And every theory that I have about what it may or may not have been, my brain has an answer as to why it couldn't possibly be that. We have lock files. They should be deterministic. The behavior on CI shouldn't change. And this, like, nothing makes sense. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. And did anyone else report this sort of like, because if it was a package that got pushed, I imagine that there was some other team that would also be impacted by this build failure as well. So were there any other reports of a similar issue? So the weird, the spooky behavior that we saw was any build within the CI for this particular application, any build that did not modify the package.json or yarn.lock file would build fine. So that meant that it was using a cached version of the node modules to do the build. So it previously, from previous downloads of the dependencies, had a fully coherent set of dependencies. But anything that touched the lock file in any way, and the reason that that's important is that will bust the cache on CircleCI, and it will then download new dependencies from NPM. Anything that touched it, even if it was irrelevant to the actual build, we had like true dev dependencies. There's a little server that we use for the end-to-end tests. It's not part of the built artifact. It should not affect this. And yet, changing the version of that forced a new download of the dependencies, and then things broke. And so every build that had any impact on the package.json or yarn lock, but not necessarily affecting the actual dev dependencies going into the build process, would cause this failure. But only for like 10 hours, and then it fixed itself. I'm curious, what was the particular error that you were running into? Was it when it was like trying to parse HTML and assert something on the page? So at, at the point that we saw it, it was saying cannot require uh, GenSync. And that was deeply nested within Babel or Babel preset env. And I was actually able to like walk into the files and see where that was happening. And I could confirm that we did not have that dependency installed, but I also didn't have it installed locally, and yet it built locally just fine. So it was there's some version of it where Babel preset env was determining that it needed a different set of transforms on CI than it did locally. So there is a tool called BrowserList that we use that is the thing that says, I need the two most recent versions of the browsers. That's what I need to support. And that's a dynamic thing that may mean Chrome 73 today, but next week there's a new version, so it's Chrome 74. It's that sort of thing. And the features of those browsers, the JavaScript that they support changes over time. So the browserless stuff does mean that there will be dynamic behavior of compilation or transpilation or whatever word. But we tried busting those caches. We tried changing. Like, we tried everything we possibly could. And again, the behavior at one point, Matt, without changing anything, just said rebuild on CI for one of the failing pull requests that we had. And suddenly it just started working. And then all of them started working, which is the most frustrating thing in the world. This is one of those where you just play the do, 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 do. And like walk and walk away from it. (laughs) Yep. I would love to get an answer is the thing. Like this is almost the worst possible outcome where both we lost the time, but we also don't have any new knowledge. I don't know what happened here. I explored some packages and got to learn a little bit more about the ecosystem, but I just don't know. And if this occurs again, like I'm just scared that suddenly the build's going to break again. And I don't want that. I don't want to lose this time again. So how could you investigate further from here? Because you've done everything you can, it sounds like, on your end. Like, is this a point where you could even reach out to CircleCI and ask them if they knew of any changes, if anyone else reported a similar issue? Like, I feel like you need some collaboration at this point to find out some more context clues to dig into. I mean, at this point, our main thing is we're just back to trying to ship features and things. Because it's not reproducible at this point, I feel kind of weird reaching out. And we did keep an eye on, does Circle have any status updates about caching instability or, I don't know, something? But at this point, I don't know who are the higher powers to which I would reach out. Circle is probably one of them, but given that I can't reproduce it right now and I can barely even describe the nonsense adventure that we went on, I'm not even sure what I would say in that email, but... Yeah, we'll see if it comes up again. I am scared. 
So this is becoming a cold case. We'll just put it away for now. I think so. Yeah. And got to just get back to normal day to day, brew a new <laughs> pot of coffee and uh, get after it. <laughs> well, I'm glad it's back to green for you. But yeah, that sounds super intriguing and frustrating. I will certainly let you know if uh, this happens again. And then hopefully if it happens again, we will figure it out. But here we are. I'm trying to recall. I feel like one of the oddest challenges that I ran into at one point was something was failing on Circle CI and couldn't get it to fail locally. And it had something to do with the type of browser that Circle CI was using when it was parsing some HTML. So that's what came to mind when I was thinking about the errors. So there was something that I had to add specifically to the code to help parse the HTML that worked locally for me fine on my machine because it was using a different browser to run the test versus the browser that Circle CI was using. And that was a pretty gnarly kind of fun detective adventure to go on and also kind of one of those weird commit messages like thank goodness for commit messages because that's one of the ones where i put in there it's like i'm putting this here specifically because of this problem and then gave like three paragraphs based on my findings to sort of back it up because otherwise if you come along in the code you're really not certain why it's there so yeah (laughs) fun circle or fun ci adventures now we're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor clubhouse Clubhouse is a fast and enjoyable project management platform that breaks down silos and brings teams together to ship value, not features. Let's face it, slow, confusing UX is so last decade. Clubhouse is lightning fast, built for today's software teams with only the features and best practices you need to succeed and nothing more. Here are a few highlights about Clubhouse. Flexible workflows, easily customized workflow states for teams or projects of any size. Advanced filtering, quickly filter by project or team to see how everything is progressing. Sprint planning. Set your weekly priorities with iterations and let Clubhouse run the schedule. They also integrate with the tools you love. So Clubhouse ties into your existing tools, services, and workflow. Get notifications or create a story in Slack. Update the status of a story with a pull request. Preview designs from Figma links. Build your own integration with our API and more. Enjoyable collaboration. Easy drag and drop UI. Dark mode. Emoji reactions and more. When you're doing your best work and your team is clicking, life is good. Clubhouse has recently made all core features completely free for teams with up to 10 users, and they're offering listeners of the Bike Shed two free months on any paid plan with unlimited users and access to premium features. Give it a try at clubhouse.io slash bike shed. Once again, that URL is clubhouse.io slash bike shed. Bike shed's all one word right there. So give it a try. Thanks again to Clubhouse for sponsoring this episode of the Bike Shed. Uh, So changing topics just a little bit, I interacted with a new Rails library that I haven't used before. It's called Axis Paranoid. Is that something that you've used before in your development? I don't know if I've actively used it, but I think I'm familiar with the loose idea, but let's chat about it. Yeah. uh, So it's an active record plugin uh, that supports soft deleting records. Soft deleting records is something that I've typically implemented by hand by, let's say, like adding a deleted at column, implementing the controller destroy action to set that deleted at value, and then introducing perhaps like an active scope to make it easy for folks to sort of exclude anything that's been hidden or deleted. And Access Paranoid, uh, the workflow is pretty similar, but it hooks into active records destroy action and sets the deleted at column anytime you call destroy on a record. And then if you want to truly destroy a record, then you either have to call destroy on that object or that record twice, or they do have a helper method called destroy fully, and that will truly delete the record. I'm intrigued by the existence of call destroy twice. The first time just to intend to destroy, and then the second time to really destroy it. I like that there's a different version that's like a destroy fully method. 
but I'm, I'm kind of intrigued that there's a call destroy twice and it will actually go away. Yeah, I also appreciate that they introduced another method because that would be weird to see like a destroy chain or having to call it twice. That wouldn't really make sense to the reader unless they have experience with that to understand. So that part feels interesting. There's some nice parts about it where no one can accidentally delete. So if you have soft deletion, someone could come in and just call destroy on the record. If you've hand rolled the soft deletion, call destroy on the record and truly delete it. But this way it prevents someone from accidentally truly deleting a record. Like they're forced to go through that soft deletion workflow. That part is pretty neat, even though I'm I'm usually not a fan of like hooking into like active record and sort of like hijacking the actions and behaviors that I'm used to. But that part is nice where I know everybody else is going to go through that same flow and soft delete first without having to think about it. And then there are some other interesting things that came up with it as well, because I was implementing an API endpoint so we can delete records. And one of the issues that came to mind is I thought, well, if someone sends the API request twice, I don't want it to actually delete the record. I want to maintain that soft deletion status. So I wrote the failing test to make sure that it would um, not delete the record and it passed without me actually writing the code to make it pass. And I realized it's because Access Paranoid adds a default scope where anytime you're querying for those records, it's going to ignore any records that are already deleted or in that hidden state, which is a bit confusing when you introduce like a scope. They're kind of tricky because they hide important details that can lead to some surprises. But in this case, it worked in my favor because it was hiding that. So then someone couldn't try to call destroy on that twice. So it's one of those like, huh, I don't like the default scope, but you did just sort of like provide a solution to something that I was thinking about. And that part's nice. So yeah, it's been pretty pleasant to work with so far. I've enjoyed it. It's interesting. I was going to specifically ask about the default scope. Because I'm similar where at this point, I would rarely, if ever, introduce a default scope because I felt so much pain from them in the past. And that like, it's subtly hiding things and we want to provide some other interface to the data. But similarly, this is like hooking into destroy, which is a very low level thing to hook into or active record callbacks is the other one that I tend to avoid. But those few times where they are really nice, they're really nice. And this is a case where it's like, everything you've described sounds good. I think I like it, but that's it. No more. We are not allowed to do any more weird stuff. No more hidden surprises. Yeah, um, I'm with you. Because then I was trying to think, well, default scopes in this case, when would it trick me? And I think it would trick me if I were trying to understand how many records truly exist. Because if I'm running like accounts on all of them, then I wouldn't understand how many records truly exist. But that's something I feel like I'm probably not doing that often. From a more feature implementation, it's most likely that I'm going to always want to exclude those deleted records, although there may be some cases where I want to include those. And then Access Paranoid does provide some other scopes, so that way you can you can use the unscope functionality that Active Record provides, or you can also use some of the scopes that Access Paranoid provides as well, so that way you're getting all of them. So yeah, I think it just comes down to like making sure that it's communicated that this has a default scope which I don't think is terribly obvious, except if you look at the top of the model file, you'll see the access paranoid is included, which could then help give you a clue, but it's a bit of a, a long winding trail to get there. Sort of the core story of Rails that like there's so much magic and there's so much hidden. And so you get a ton of behavior without having to write a lot of code. But then when you want to figure out who's doing this thing to this model, who is it? It can be difficult to chase down. And yeah, double-edged swords. Along that thread, the team that I'm working with had a really awesome conversation around when we were introducing soft deletion, where we were deciding if it made sense to just let users delete the records for real, if we want to preserve the state of that record. And the initial reaction was, 
that we want to hold on to everything. And it was taking us down a little bit more of like adding some complexity to the feature we're introducing. And then someone asked a great question of like, well, what if we just let them delete stuff? And then they let us know if it's painful and figure it out from there and sort of take that approach first before we optimize and presume on their behalf that they're going to like make mistakes and wish they hadn't deleted that record. So we had longer conversations and we ended up leaning towards, we do want to keep the records, not just for the user, but for our history as well. But I just really appreciated that question of like, what if we let the users use this first before we make presumptions as to where they're going to like run into some speed bumps? I love that as the question, the not how should we implement this complex logic, but stepping back one and being like, should we do this at all? What if we didn't at all? And then sometimes we convince ourselves that we should, you know, it's one of those cases, but it's so easy to reach for writing code. That's so much my default that one of the things working at ThoughtBot that has consistently been a theme is to fight that voice and to be like, but should we though? And sometimes, yeah, we definitely need to write some code, just probably not as much as exists in the world overall. Yeah, I'm with you. That's been a really nice, strong thing with my current team, where they've done a really excellent job of just questioning of where are we making assumptions on the behalf of the user versus just asking the user or letting them sort of explore it themselves first before we then write that additional code to help them. But make sure it is helpful before we go for it ourselves. But I think we have a default where we've written enough code and applications and features that we have the standard idea of how a feature works and how folks are going to interact with it. So it's really nice to have that voice in the room that's going to question like, I know like a lot of deletion features work this way, but what if we rolled it out more slowly versus just sort of like reaching for that default behavior of how we're going to handle it. So yeah, that's uh, been a pretty fun feature to work on just from all the conversations that fell out of it and then using a new gym that I haven't interacted with before. So we have a listener question that I'm excited for us to dive into today. This question uh, was sent to us on Twitter, and it comes from Matt Swanson. And Matt wrote in, I've been struggling lately with the tension between craft slash team preferences and client experience slash business needs when leading a project. It's great when they can overlap, but I feel like I'm getting squeezed from both ends when they don't. Do you have any thoughts, any tips? Oh, man, this is a heck of a question. The first thing that I would say is this is something that I am personally struggling with right now and just more generally is sort of a constant theme. The reality of business needs and then the like craftsmen, uh, that's an overly fanciful way to describe it. But there is always going to be a tension there, I think. That's just sort of inherent. And I think a large part of our work is navigating that. So my interpretation of the question is that we may have a team that wants to use Rails or Elixir or Elm or some other technology that they're fond of for, say, personal reasons or aesthetic preferences or things like that. But at the end of the day, we need to build digital products. That's our job. That's the thing that we're doing in the world. And so the first, the like zeroth order answer in my mind is at the end of the day, that is our job is to build things and get features out to users. So we need to be serving that end. And if at any point, technical choices that we're making are in direct opposition or even you know subtle opposition to that, I don't think we get to make that choice. So like if Rails weren't good at delivering product features, then I don't think we would get to use it for client-facing work or for you know building whatever products we are in a commercial sense. Uh, that said, I think there's still room for exploring things and side projects and things like that. So I think there's like that end of the answer. Perhaps there needs to be sort of a separation of how you think about technology. There's the fun stuff that you get to do on the weekends. And then there's the stuff that we use for work. But I think there's a more subtle argument 
around where is the distinction between craft and preference and where is the distinction between going fast early and going fast in the long term? And that's the one that I'm personally struggling with right now. Yeah, I like how you provided some context around your interpretation for the question, because I also have some experience that I think would apply to this sort of tension between the two, where I've experienced one, which I think you're highlighting now is the idea of moving quickly. But then there's also the crafting preferences of where you want to implement great code or solid code that you can then work with. So you don't feel like you're moving too quickly, that then you're going to pay that tax later down the road where you need to do some refactoring that may be one of those tensions that Matt's referring to. The other one that I've experienced is when you're in a space that you're meeting some compliance requirements. So if you are introducing a feature that is purely to meet a compliance requirement, so that way you can meet a certification, but the users themselves don't really like how it's implemented or they don't find it necessarily useful, there can be tension there between that sort of like craft and team preference of where you are committed to delivering value to the user But then at the same time, you have this business need of where you need to implement this feature to meet a certification requirement. And that one is pretty challenging. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that particular scenario, too. That's interesting to me because I hadn't thought about it from that perspective of what are the features or the interface that we actually build into the product based on any external constraints or like, do we have a automatically checked marketing opt-in box or not? I almost consider that a different question. I I think a harder question to answer because now you're talking about cases where the best interest of the user is sort of at odds with the thing that we're building. And in those cases, my preference is to push back as hard as possible. And I, I sort of view that as a different camp from the more subtle technical thing. But it's interesting that in your mind, they're they're closer together. Yeah, it might be just because that's resonating with me since that's something that I've experienced recently. It could be the other perspective that you mentioned earlier, where it's really more of like that team craft preference of where the team really wants to work in a particular stack, but that stack doesn't meet the needs. So if folks are, I think you and I are kind of a good example of that, where we're really excited about Elm. We really want to write Elm, but we also recognize that that's not always the best choice for a client. So we put the client's experience and business needs before our craft preferences. Yep. I think speaking particularly to Elm, my goal right now is to continue exploring Elm as much as possible. And I think more broadly, this is happening sort of throughout ThoughtBot and to find a way to make it viable because I'm deeply convinced that the long-term benefits of using something like Elm, the ability to keep changing the software over time is the thing that I care about so much more than the initial velocity. And it's really interesting, like the story around Rails when it first came out was, look at how much code I'm not writing. I made a blog in 20 minutes and I didn't write much. But the long-term maintainability story in Rails apps is different. And frankly, our answer to that has been test-driven development, which also, if we're being honest, does slow things down a little bit upfront. But the promise is longer-term maintainability. And then, frankly, I've seen a lot of cases where people write tests and the tests aren't ideal. And it's sort of a, they're writing tests because they have to. And the tests actually slow things down long term. So there's this like back and forth and ebb and flow of what good quality software and what craftsmanship mean. And so my goal is to find the best versions of that and prove, for lack of a better word, or be able to really defend the idea that like, no, Elm is absolutely the best technology for us to use to build this front end right now. And I'm getting closer to that, and I hope we're going to live in that future soon. But I do feel like we have to earn that as technologists. We can't just say we want to use Elm because we want to use Elm, unfortunately. Yeah, I think one of the ways that I think through whenever facing that tension or the idea of facing that tension between the craft and then the business needs is ultimately if I am pushing hard for a particular 
craft or team or framework or language preference, it's because I believe that's actually going to support the business need. I'm not advocating for it because I think it's the best for the team or personal preferences, but it's because I see in the long term that this is going to be the best for our business goals and for the user experience. And that's usually where I feel like that helps reduce the tension is because that's ultimately my goal is like what's going to be great for the users and for the business. And then what technology is going to help me get there. You know, that's the whole point. If we're not servicing our users and if we don't have the company, then that erodes at our team. So maybe that seems kind of obvious, but that's often where I'm coming from. I think maybe it's obvious, but it also, I think, bears repeating over and over again the idea that like that's how we make this work, this union of craft and products, because I believe that thing of like it needs to be in service of the users. And I don't know if my initial answer started from that. So thank you for getting us to that place towards the end of the conversation, because I think that is the heart of the issue is we choose technologies because they help us go fast, but go fast and continue to go fast. That's, I think, the subtlety that I'm leaning more and more towards technologies that allow us to continue going fast, if at the cost of a little bit of initial velocity. And that, I think, is where the tension is right now for me. And saying that we have the same goals and like coming together with business folks and being able to say, like, absolutely, we're on the same page here. I just think we need to change a little bit how we're thinking about it or think a little bit longer term. So circling back just a little bit where we talked about earlier about a business need and how that doesn't necessarily align with the user need, but it's something we still need to achieve for the business. Maybe it's for that certification purpose, since that's kind of the, the freshest example I have in my mind. You'd mentioned earlier that you would push back pretty hard on that. And I'm not totally sure I would agree. Like I do agree in the sense that we want to always be an advocate for the user, But I do understand that there are times that if we need to implement something for the business to continue or to achieve a certain security or certification, that there may be times that we do need to implement something. And then we want to make sure that we implement in a way that's not intrusive to the user or prevents them from getting their work done. But we may still need to push ahead and add that anyways. How do you feel about that? How do you balance that? Unsurprisingly, I I think we actually agree on this, but I think there's subtlety in like which things fall into which side of that line if you were to draw a line in the sand. So I can actually give two particular examples that I've seen recently. One is an example where there's a client that I've worked with where they grew to a certain size where for PCI compliance reasons, so handling of credit card data and things like that, they no longer could just do the like, we're going to pay Stripe and just have a form that we fire the data off and get it back. They needed another level of security. And so they used a feature called hosted fields, which is something that Braintree was the service provider they were using in that case. But it makes it so that each of the credit card inputs are actually in an iframe that is hosted from Braintree as opposed to being a like raw part of the HTML of the site, which was really interesting. It's like another layer of security. It's sandboxing essentially each of those inputs. And then there's a complicated out and back that gets you the token and does all of the things. But it basically adds another layer of security. And it was needed for compliance reasons and related to the size that they had reached and the you know customer security and things like that. So that's a case where additional complexity came into the product that I would vastly have preferred to not come in, but it was for good reason. And in that case, it was like, yeah, cool. All right, we're doing this. I did pushback is probably too strong of a word, but I asked a lot of questions when that feature came down the pike. I was like, are we sure? Do we definitely have to? Okay, we definitely have to. Let's do that. The counterpoint that I will give is the most recent upgrade to the Google search engine. Recently, it became darn near impossible to tell ads from any other results in the search list. 
they've slowly over time been whittling away the visual distinction between an ad result, like a paid placement within the search results versus an actual, like, that's the thing I was searching for. And that is, I would say, just directly against the user desire. It blurs that line and it makes it so I'm that much more likely to click an ad. But what I want is the most relevant search result, not the thing that was paid to be put in front of me. That's the kind of thing where I would dig my heels in a lot harder. Yeah, that starts to feel a little bit more you're taking advantage of your users to achieve a business goal. And that feels wrong. Like you're not necessarily trying to protect your users and therefore implementing some additional layer of security or complexity. And you're just sort of, it sounds a little mean, but just taking advantage of the users and the fact that you can push forward with a business goal, but there's really no value to the users. Like at least in some other cases, like in the one that I was referring to with the certification, there is some end value to the users because that will eventually help out with some of like the security and privacy that they have. So that still feels like a win all around versus in that example you gave with Google. I'm, I'm not sure there's a win for the users there. If anything, I would argue that there's a strong loss for the users. And a long time ago, Google took don't be evil out of their mission statement as a company. So it's not super surprising. Wow, I didn't know that. How long yeah. ago was that? I was uh, six or more years ago. That's a big change. I mean, granted, don't be evil is pretty vague. So but still to just totally rip it out and not replace it. That's fascinating. Don't be evil is vague. But the removal of don't be evil from your <laughs> from your company statement is that's a move. So uh, yeah. <laughs> Feels like you're opening the doors. Let's be evil. (laughs) We're just, we're not saying actively that we don't want to be evil. We're not saying we want to be evil now. We're just not, not saying it. (laughs) Well, I think with that uh, adventurous last note, uh, we're probably good to wrap up. You want to wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you've enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bike Shed or reach me at svicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, come discover a better way to work.